You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Flying on the set. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Welcome, welcome everyone to Movie Night with Sif. I'm your host, Gabby, and I'm here with our lead shorts programmer, Adam. Say hi, Adam. Hey, what's up? I'll tell you what's up. Hollywood's biggest night is coming up this Sunday. So we hope you've prepared by listening to last month's episode where our in-house Oscars expert, Brian Owens, ran down everything you need to know about snubs, insider nominations info, and the potential winners of the big four categories. Today, we're bringing the Oscars to you with two-time Academy Award nominee, Chris Bowers. On top of being nominated for his work as a film director, Chris is an Emmy Award-winning and two-time Grammy-nominated composer, a Juilliard-educated pianist. He's composed original scores for films like Green Book and The Color Purple, as well as hit shows like Bridgerton. Up next, he will be chatting with us about his latest project, The Last Repair Shop, which is up for Best Documentary Short Subject at the Academy Awards. Chris co-directed and produced this short alongside Ben Proudfoot of Breakwater Studios, you might remember from our very first episode of Movie Night with Sif. If you loved his work in A Concerto is a Conversation, which played at Sif 2021, you're going to love The Last Repair Shop. This short takes us into a nondescript downtown Los Angeles warehouse in which a dwindling handful of devoted craftspeople keep over 80,000 student instruments in good repair. Los Angeles is one of the last American cities to provide free and freely repaired musical instruments to public school students. Throughout the film, audiences witness the profound life stories of four master craftspeople, as well as the students whose lives have been transformed by their instruments. In all their stories, music has been the continuous thread that has mended their hearts and brought them to where they are now. So here to tell us a little bit more about the short film and his career so far uh, is Chris Bowers. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming. I know you're super busy. You got so many irons in the fire right now. So thanks for joining. Um, to kick this off, I want to go back to Concerto as a conversation a little bit. Um, that was obviously a very personal film, I think, with you and uh, and your family. Um, and this time doing Last Repair Shop, um, from a director's standpoint, I guess, this is a little bit of a broader scope. So how did you get connected with the LA Unified School District um, and this instrument warehouse? How did this story kind of come about? Yeah, so, I mean, my connection to the district is um, back to when I was a kid. I went to LAUSD schools ever since elementary school. Um, and uh, with the shop, Ben uh, actually told me about it, even through my entire schooling going to LAUSD schools I didn't know about this repair shop and um, it was actually while we were working on a concerto as a conversation that Ben brought uh, the story to me and one of our producers Jeremy Lambert sent Ben an article about the repair shop and Ben was like well you're from here and you went to LAUSD schools you must know about this repair shop and I had no idea and I it also just made me um, uh, reflect on the fact that as a kid I never even thought about how those instruments got repaired or stayed you know, well-maintained. Um, and so learning about it just made me want to kind of dive deeper and get into the story. That's pretty wild to think about. Yeah. Like you never think about where these things come from. You're just like, they just show up at your school. Yeah. And I also th always thought um, that it went to some, you know, manufacturer or some huge, mm. uh, you know, company somewhere that was fixing all these instruments. And to know that it was this a uh, very large warehouse, but only 12 people were, were down there working on it, uh, or at least now, um, was pretty mind-blowing to me. I know you um, you actually, like you mentioned, you went to school in the Los Angeles area. Is that part of kind of what drew you to the story? What about that experience do you think really was like, I got to nail this story just right? Yeah, exactly that. For me, it became a way to 
acknowledge and and pay tribute to this um system that had a lot to do with my own personal love for music and connection to music and access to that music and and eventually success um and so in a way it was a thank you but also um you know people think about the end result oftentimes when it comes to um you know some incredible musician that uh you know goes to some amazing school or becomes incredibly famous or you know um, plays these huge concert halls and for this movie it felt important to turn the camera on the people that um we don't know had had some sort of hand in helping that star get to wherever they are you know and so um it was also just trying to acknowledge that those stars don't just come out of out of nowhere oftentimes they come out of um a village and a community that's that has many pieces that come together to help them um get to where they get to and this repair shop here in LA I think has a, a huge hand in that for everyone coming through that district yeah that actually you know that's leads me perfectly to my next question which was actually about how did this experience in the school district lead you to go to Juilliard where you got you know obviously like an incredible musical education Juilliard is this spectacular music school you got a bachelor's and a master's degree in jazz performance which is like the olympics of music jazz musicians scare me so hard <laughs> how do y'all have to take get so many notes out of an instrument it's actually insane um how does your experience in that district lead you to studying that at Juilliard I think just having um a space to explore that stuff because for me my love for piano really came and music really came from it being one of my um one of the best ways for me to express myself or move through different emotions i just remember being in elementary school and especially middle school which i feel like middle school is hard for for anybody <laughs> essentially and i feel like there were so many um days i remember being in the in the music room during lunch or like going to the auditorium during lunch and like and you know sometimes with a friend and uh like play some different pieces for them and stuff but i think that for me it was um such a comfortable place in in an otherwise uncomfortable environment and in an uncomfortable time of life essentially and so um having access to that really helped me uh, develop this serious love for for um music and then also going back to elementary school i remember an orchestra came in and and talked about each section of the orchestra based on john williams music and so my love for film mm -hmm. music i think started really early on not only because i loved movies and and was playing music but also because i still remember them talking about jaws and playing the the uh, theme in the bases or talking about star wars and playing a theme on french horn and me being like wow like that's that sounds exactly like the sound i'm used to in the movie and so um yeah everything that i've been uh reaching for in my own career definitely has a lot of roots in in those experiences in school yeah I want to talk about, let's talk more in detail about this film, because I love Dwayne personally and deeply. Um, he, for those of us, for, the, for those of you listening, he's one of the repair shop uh, craftspeople. He's working on Woodwinds, and he has an incredible story about how one $20 fiddle from a swap meet took him all the way to the stage playing alongside, like, Elvis. Um, the part that I, that really stuck with me, he mentioned that it was actually the 1931 film Frankenstein, that first inspired him to play the violin. So there's a scene where Frankenstein gets all choked up. He wanders across a cabin where there's like an old blind man playing the violin and he kind of like um, emotionally connects in that moment. 
as a composer who also makes films, do you have a cinematic moment that sort of inspires you or inspired you in that way? Yeah, you know, I think it's just um, watching um, the two movies that st uh, stand out in my mind are Star Wars and um, and uh, Jurassic Park. And I can't remember if the Star Wars was one of the newer ones or if it was one of the older ones that my dad, you know, like episode four, maybe when I first, first, first saw Star Wars. And my dad wanted me to see those before we saw the uh, earlier episodes that came out in the 90s um, and early 2000s. But uh, I just remember for those movies being able to listen to the score and run around singing the melodies and feel like I was just as um, having just as much of an adventure as I did when I was watching the movie. And it was very fascinating to me to like, to think that not only can a story inspire this much imagination and, and excitement and, you know, thrills and emotion, but also the music could carry that um, within it as well. I think that was a moment for me where I felt like very fascinated with getting into this uh, space. Yeah, I can just imagine that score of Jurassic Park personally is like the gold at the Making Me Cry yeah. Olympics. It's so good. <laughs> totally. You just see yeah, anything, you just hear it and you feel yeah. it. Same with Star Wars too. Like they're both yeah. great for that. Totally. totally. Um, so part of this, this uh, the message in the film is about um, like reuse culture and like and preserving things, right? And um, in, in a culture that we have now, that's pretty wasteful, I would say, and throwing a lot of things away and, and just buying new, um, there is an importance in repairing things and in keeping those things around, especially instruments. I know they, um, they can get better with age uh, as long as you keep playing them and everything like that. So um, question is for you, do you have like a particular instrument that you have a real strong connection with or something that you've played with for for many years or you've had in the past yeah it's really just piano in terms of playing like i i actually don't play i play a, you know maybe three three chords on guitar that i can move around and that's kind of it and uh enough bass to record something for a score but not ever to perform so yeah piano has been the one since the beginning but I, ironically the, that's actually not my favorite instrument i'd say my favorite instrument is probably cello like cello and tenor sax and french horn are my three favorite instruments um it would actually probably be uh cello tenor sax french horn guitar and then piano <laughs> so piano even though it's my main <laughs> instrument is actually pretty far down the list of my top five yeah so do you have a piano particular that you play that is like this is my piano that is like the one that i pull all the good songs out of or is like really emotional and sentimental to me I mean, you know, any Steinway that that's that's in great condition, um, even ones that, you know, have been worn in a little bit. I think it's always just so amazing how they speak so clearly. Like there's so many times where I sit down at a concert hall and there's a Steinway and I could literally just, you know, drop my arm on the on the piano and it would sound beautiful. I feel like that that's going back to the importance of keeping something in tune. It's so interesting as a pianist that you're subjected to whatever piano is there, right? Like I show up at the show, there's been times I played at a, a music festival in the Caribbean and they were like, oh, the piano you're gonna play, it has an amazing story because it survived a hurricane a couple of years ago and and I played it and it sounded like it survived a hurricane barely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so you, you, you instantly play a chord and it doesn't sound good and then it makes you feel 
uh, nervous and like trepidatious and you don't really want to try things because you want to do what you know works because it's hard to tell whether or not, especially in jazz, like this harmony, is it crunchy because it's, 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 Uh, has a little bit of nice dissonance or is it crunchy because it's out of tune and and um has a twang to it so i feel like anytime i i play on a well-kept steinway it's always amazing to just you know i could i feel like i could do anything and it's going to sound uh really beautiful yeah you mentioned earlier that you had a child in the middle of this process obviously this is a story that heavily involves kids and you know you've got the story of the craftswoman who you know was an immigrant and she was trying to raise her kids and feed them um, how did having a kid in the middle of all of this kind of change your perspective about the stories you were telling or even watching the film back? Yeah, I think just a different level of appreciation um, for these craftspeople, uh, you know, as, as a uh, musician and as someone who was one of those kids, I obviously had an appreciation for them in terms of what they did for me, like what, what they've done for young people. But, you know, as you get older and especially having a kid and and um uh all of them are parents um it, it just always moves me how much people can still sacrifice um when they are uh in the face of like the ups and downs of of you know trying to take care of your family and the fact that like no matter what they still talked about this not just as a job to feed their family but you know they had this very specific passion and and um care for their their craft because of the kids that that they were doing it for and so i think you know being able to maintain that nobility in the face of just everyday life but especially as a parent i think is is um uh really something i admire in each of them and then with patty's story in particular that you mentioned i before i started working before we had uh, coda my daughter i remember watching patty's interview and I would always get emotional and still do when she talks about, you know, not being able to afford things for Christmas and not being able to afford food and not being able to afford the clarinet for her son. And now I remember watching it after having Coda and I actually got more emotional um, when she talks about getting home that night and after she got the job and talking to her kids and celebrating and jumping up and down with them. And that again made impacted me differently this idea of of you know doing whatever you can to um to provide for your kids but those moments where there's just this beautiful joy um between you as uh, parents and, and children I think is something that I obviously couldn't know until having Coda so it's, it's been really awesome to reflect on Patty's story in particular uh in that way too um uh, let's talk a little about you and Ben you and Breakwater um, how did you get involved with, or where did you meet Ben? Um, where did you get involved with Breakwater? Cause this is your second project, um, directing with them. Um, so I'm just curious what that relationship is like and when did it start? Yeah. So Ben and I met through a, a mutual mentor who's also, um, uh, an EP on, on this film named Peter Rotter. And I knew Peter Rotter cause he's basically the, uh, best contractor in LA, like, or at least, you know, one of the best contractors in LA. And um, uh, he's always just kind of helped me with different things. And at some point I wrote a little short story that I wanted to direct. And I reached out to him and asked him if he had any advice. And he immediately was like, well, you have to meet Ben, because uh, he could definitely help you out. 
And so I went down to Breakwater and Ben gave me a tour and just talked to me about what I was trying to do. And he was incredibly generous. He basically produced that film for me, which really became a self-funded student film. But um, he allowed me to use their camera equipment. We did all of our post-production there. And um, he also just really walked me through the process. And so we became friends at that point and had a lot of mutual friends. But then at the same time, um, uh, when we did Concerto's a Conversation, I think that's when we really, really became deep friends. And, uh, you know, not only him getting to know my family and spending time with my parents, my grandparents, um, after that project, my, my siblings started working at Breakwater. So it just became a serious mm -hmm. family affair. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. So now, you know, even with or without work, um, you know, he and I are talking all the time just about life and how we see business or how we see, you know, our partnerships or, um, uh, and especially how we see our, our craft. Yeah. So that was, was that your first um, time directing coming into Concerto? Um, Cause I know you do a lot of composing and stuff. What, what was it like kind of transitioning into um, directing in that form? Yeah, I think it was, you know, an extension of, of what I've been always interested in. When I was a kid, I would always come up with these stories and um, my dad was a writer and I wanted to be a cartoonist, but, you know, I would always like invent all these worlds and everything. And so I always wanted to try to find a way to get into it. And before I met Ben, I was working um, as a composer on a documentary about Kobe Bryant. And at the same time, Kobe was basically creating an autodidactic um uh like training course for himself to learn how to tell stories and, and make film mm -hmm. and i was there as he was getting all that information because it was while we were making that documentary that um he was having the editors explain editing to him and and give recommendations on films to watch and directors and like why is it that this uh you know uh, this three act structure thing makes sense and how's it playing the psychology, like all that stuff. And so um, I was kind of a fly on the wall while he was getting a lot of that education. And for me, I, that's what got the wheels turning in, in a real way for me to be like, Oh, I actually really want to try directing something. Um, and that's what led to me making that basically self-funded student film. And then, but yeah, Concerto was the first time that I was in a more real way, stepping into the director's seat. Um, but that was also uh, just, you know, being really close to Ben and, and learning from him and observing. And a lot of that uh, process was also the fact that it was my grandfather. So I was, you know, doing the interview and, and that's typically what a director is doing. And, um, and obviously, like the story itself it comes from um, my grandfather's story and how we talked about that. So, you know, a lot of that involvement was more on on the story side and structure side and also um you know giving feedback in terms of how i felt about the cuts and all that kind of stuff but this one was a lot more um you know intimately involved in, in the process and so with both of them i feel like it's been a really amazing lesson for me uh just because ben's so incredible at it that I, I take it as an opportunity to just uh get better at the craft that i that i'm interested in yeah so so yeah you're you're jumping now you're back jumping back and forth between directing and composing a bit um and jumping around composing different mediums i guess or different different styles i guess you do a lot of uh feature film short film television do you find that there's a difference between sh like shifting between all those things do you 
have different styles or different um, sort of procedures that you go through when you're composing? You know, for the mediums, there actually isn't really a different approach. Um, like, uh, for me, um, I approach writing a score for a short film, same way I do a TV show and a feature film and a violin concerto. It's always like, okay, what is the story? And how is the music accentuating that story? And like, anytime I feel lost, I'm always going back to that story and I'm developing themes. And whenever I have themes that feel like they're really working, I iterate on those themes and try to pull as much information as I can from those themes. So, you know, I would just say that it's, um, it's the differences obviously in process and the amount of time and um, all of that. But it's on the creative side, it's actually really, really similar. Uh, and, and all those different spaces. Yeah. Well, you're obviously really in your element, you know, making brand new music, but what happens when you're composing for a show like Bridgerton and they're like, here's one of the most beloved Madonna songs of all time. Please do something with it that people will like, which is, you know, borderline impossible because people have their favorites. <laughs> um, so what's it like working on a show like that, especially when you've got, you know, the pressure of it also being a Shonda Rhimes production. So it's like, gotta achieve this level of like massive pop culture relevance and like excellence um that's like a double whammy of pressure there how do you navigate that what was that experience like yeah i think um in terms of the pressure you know one i don't think anybody or any situation could put as much pressure as i put on myself on a daily basis so <laughs> i'm pretty used to feeling really? that um and and anybody else's pressure feels like easy compared to my own but um uh usually I funnel that that energy and that that pressure into just trying to do a good job. And like I think that, you know, when I think about the beginning of Bridgerton, one, obviously couldn't we couldn't have known how popular it was gonna be. I mean, I had I had a feeling, but I didn't know it was gonna be as popular as it ended up being, especially on the music side of it. But for me, I just was like, I just wanna do a good job. Like I, I that's how I feel with everything. I wanna make sure that if I watch this afterward um i feel nothing but but pride and even, even if there are things that fall short of what i wanted to do or thought i could have done or you know want to do something differently that's always going to be there but as long as i feel like oh man i really put my all into that i think it's like kind of what i'm reminding myself of during the process anytime i'm dealing with you know pressures or tight deadlines or any of that kind of stuff for me i'm just always reminding myself that like I can't allow those things um, to impact the work and that the work um, and the craft is, is all about just trying to pay attention to details and, and make it as good as possible based on what I think it should be. Um, and, um, and then having teammates and, and collaborators that also feel that way. I think with Shonda and, you know, Chris Van Dusen, the showrunner and all the other producers, Tom and Betsy and Allison, like they are encouraging in that way where um, they don't, they're not telling me like, this is going to be the biggest show ever. You better make this good. They're just like, like, what do you think? Like, how, how would you do this? And I'll try something like, yeah, you know, that's not really quite it. And you know, why don't we try this? And the other thing I really appreciate is that they um, gave me that opportunity only based on our, our relationship um, on, I did a show for Shondaland a few years before called for the people, but that was kind of the only reason why, I got Bridgerton because they're a very familial production company. And so for them, it was like, okay, we have this new project coming up. Who do we want for music? We think Chris is great. Let's have Chris do it. 
and there wasn't a conversation of like, oh, well, can you write this style of music? And, you know, the stuff you did on For the People is this kind of tone. This is not going to be that kind of tone. So can you do like an audition for us? It just was like, here's here's the job. We know you're going to do a great job. And I think anybody that has that type of um, collaborative intention and, and dynamic that they establish uh, allows for people to not feel those pressures that might come from expectations and really just focusing on on doing a good job. So yeah, speaking like working super hard, you're always on. Um, you had a huge year last year, I think, uh, co-directing this short that was super highly praised. Um, doing doing the score for the color purple and Ava's uh, origin. Um, also the doc, the Hulu doc anthem, which is fantastic. Um, for those of us up in Canada, uh, we don't have Hulu, but it's on Disney Plus, um, so you can definitely check it out there. It's great. Maybe not the most Canadian of docs um but doesn't don't let don't let people don't let that like sway you people in canada it's still great it's still fantastic um so you've got the oscars coming up really soon uh for the last repair shop uh you have the bob marley one love score i believe coming what else what else is in the cards for 2024 for chris bowers yes so uh right now it's just um i'm working on bridgerton season three and then also um uh the, uh, a movie called The Wild Robot. Uh, it's a, a DreamWorks movie that um, I, I've been working on for a little while now that comes out sometime in the fall. Nice. Cool. That's going to be great. Bridgerton season three is going to be exciting. I'm going to be absolutely sat, tuned in, headphones on, candles lit, ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a vibe for sure. Chris, you've had an amazing career. You're going to have even more amazing moments. We're absolutely sure of it. We look forward to seeing y'all potentially win on sunday it's going to be really really exciting um for now are you ready to play some games yeah let's do it let's get into it let's do it it is now time for games first up we have my favorite why are you booing me i'm right in this game our guests give their film hot takes so we actually um played this in the very first episode with uh, your co-director, Ben Proudfoot, on this film, who um, was gracious enough to be our very first guest. It's now our 20th episode, so we're having a real full circle moment. Ben's hot take was um, Spielberg's War Horse didn't get enough recognition, especially for that beautiful John Williams score. Now, Chris, what is your film hot take? Oh, um, it's funny. I've had all this time to think, and I'm still like, I don't really know if I have. <laughs> um... You know, only because it's the first thing that comes up and it's sad that I'm even going to say it, but um, the movie Hitch had a, it's like, I don't even know if it's one of the greatest movies, but it had one of the biggest impacts on my life personally. Mm. And I feel like that movie is such a, like my um, idea of what it means to like be a, a good partner or to like strive to, you know, uh, connect with someone in a in a deep way. I, like literally, actually comes from watching that movie multiple times in the beginning of high school. So I'm gonna say, Hitch is is far a far far underrated uh, movie when it comes to being a good human in the world. <laughs> Hell yeah, I feel that way about Click. <laughs> yeah, I, oh, I like that. There you go. Yeah, they're both slam jammers. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that it's um. You know what? It's not a pretentious film take. It's a great film take, yeah. and I agree. Yeah, thanks, thanks. All right, that was Why Are You Blue Me? I'm Right. Cool. Well, next up, we've got uh, one-star reviews. So this is where we've pulled uh, a bunch of one-star reviews for, from Letterboxd, um, kind of hot takes or, or, 
or crazy quick snippets about a film. I'm gonna read you the review and then you have to guess what film it is. We do have a theme for this, uh, this, this episode and it's films about composing. So if that gives you a little bit of a hint, um, we'll kick it off with maybe an easy-ish one based on what I'm gonna say for it, so. All right, um, Bradley Cooper was literally tweaking the entire movie. I've never seen someone that sweaty before and I watched The Iron Claw. Uh, maestro. <laughs> maestro. Maestro. Yeah, nice. Very yes. good. <laughs> Which I thought was very good. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. Next up. I support women's rights, but more importantly, I support women's wrongs. Oh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say tar. Just because that's the yes. Yeah, tar. Wow. <laughs> nice. I thought that was going nice. to be the hard one. You nailed it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. And we got one more here. Um, this one might be an easy one for you now. Um, now I want to watch Andrew Garfield and Bo Burnham fight to the death over whose I'm sad I'm turning 30 song is better. Oh, well, I guess, I guess it'd be tick, tick, boom. And then they're kind of referencing, um, inside the Bo Burnham. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah yes! for sure. Both tick, tick, boom. Yeah. yeah. You killed it. You did it. Yeah. Great job. Nice. Nailed Three out of four ain't bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for playing these games with us and coming to chat with us. We're so looking forward to rooting for y'all up there. Um, any parting thoughts? Anything you want to direct people to? What can people go watch? What can people look forward to? Um, I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of in a craft headspace. I'd say, like, if people don't already know, I'm on shot deck almost every day pulling, like, images. And and, um, and there's, a, there's a, a video called Everything's a Remix that, like, totally changed my... my um, thinking in terms of being inspired by other people's work and anytime that I feel like I need to reinvent the wheel I often think about everything's a remix and, and just going back to something that I really love and trying to figure out how to do my version of it so yeah I feel like those two things are, are really helpful tools hmm, where can people find that video I think it's just on YouTube or Vimeo yeah it's just a, a free video it's been out for a little while um, but yeah it's really great give it a look creatives especially those of you that are stuck. I find myself stuck all the time and that kind of inspiration is totally, totally priceless when you're in that dark, dark hole of desperation. Um, also on YouTube, you can take a look at the actual film. Uh, sorry, not on YouTube. On Disney Plus, you can take a look at the actual film, The Last Repair Shop, which is has been out for a while and is amazing. If you haven't seen it, go see it. It's incredible. Um, we'll be rooting for you, pal. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you all. Really appreciate it. Okay, that's a wrap. 